This is the right direction where we talk to professional storytellers and writers and we discuss their craft and how they sell it. I'm your host, A.G. MacDonald, and let's get started with the show. Okay, we are here today with John P. Murphy, who is the author of Red Noise and uh, some novellas as well. Uh, but he's here right now, so he can tell you all about himself. Oh, golly. Hello. Um, yeah, my name is uh, John Murphy. I'm an author and by day an engineer. I've been writing for about 10 years now, semi-seriously. Uh, I've published uh, probably a dozen short stories. Um, Two novellas, uh, Claudius Rex and The Liar, which was a finalist for the Nebula Award back in 2016-2017. And yeah, most recently, uh, Red Noise, my my debut novel. Yeah, and awesome. And uh, I, I meant to drop in there when I was explaining that um, uh, it was a finalist for the Nebula Awards, which is huge. So I guess talking about Red Noise, I guess that's where we'll probably start because... Um, that's the book that I've read. And um, it was my first book from Angry Robot that I had read. And it just set up perfectly their, I don't know, publishing mantra, I guess, because mm. it, it's it's different and it it doesn't feel specifically like anything else. Like it could feel like a mixture of different things, but it doesn't feel like one thing, which is so good in, in, in a world where we're getting nothing but sequels and remakes and cookie cutter stories. It's, it's really good to get a story that felt unique. And if I was to sum it up and, and let me know if this is not what you envision for it at all, but if I was to sum it up, I would say it was like if they got Akira Kurosawa to do Deep Space Nine. Eh, that, that's not bad. That's kind of how I picture it. Because it's got that, it's got that uh, kind of like your Jimbo aspect, but at the same time, it's on a space station, kind of like Deep Space Nine, and yeah, that that's kind of how yeah. I picture it. So, oh, it, it's funny because the the Deep Space Nine, um, uh, the marketplace—I don't know what they call it there—was was very consciously in my head as I was laying out the Galleria. Well, it's funny because that's that is what I saw. That's where I saw it taking place. So uh, the problem. So, that's what they called it. Yeah. So you definitely conveyed that. You you oh, brought that yeah. across. <laughs> um, so when it came to red noise, one one question I like to ask everyone who's on the show is um how long did it take for you to go from concept to publication? And and the reason I ask that is because mm-hmm. I find it so fascinating that every single person has drastically different answers some people say that it takes forever some people say that it took them you know a year and yeah i just find that really interesting well i i I can help you out there because i have two answers awesome Uh, (laughs) uh, so the first answer is that it took almost 20 years um well, well why don't i dive into that answer first uh, so back in 1999, um, when I was in college, I did a study abroad in Japan, and I took a class in Japanese cinema, which uh, is my big introduction to Akira Kurosawa. And for that class, I did a term paper on remakes of Kurosawa's work. Um, Specifically, I I focused part of the essay on Yojimbo and how it had uh, fairly recently been remade 
as a, a Bruce Willis movie, I think it was, uh, Last Man Standing, and also as a, uh, a Clint Eastwood movie before that. And at some point in there, I thought, boy, this would make a really good science fiction movie. And that thought was sort of buried for a long time. Um, I didn't really do much writing. I, I went to grad school after that and, and really only started writing in 2010. But I kept coming back to that because you know I, I still love Kurosawa's movies and would watch them. And later on, when I was um, talking to agents, I, I had written a novel that actually hasn't been published uh, about potential projects and you know what else do you have is a fairly common question and so I, I went back into the trove of ideas in the back of my head and came up with uh, maybe a half dozen ideas and, and that was one of the ones that I was kind of pitching and that was the one that got a lot of interest uh, when I was when I was talking to folks so fast forward oh gosh this probably would have been 2017, I think. Uh, tw I, 2016 or 2017, I think it was. Um, I ha run every year a, a contest for, for the Codex uh, Writers Group. It's a small group of new professional writers that I've been a member of for a while. Um, and I try to enter the contest every year. Uh, just, you know, for, so that I know what everybody else is going through, I, I, I can kind of keep up in, in things. And I desperately needed an idea. So I took this, what I had been pitching. Uh, so, so I guess I, I'm now on to answer number two here. And I took this and I wrote it up as a novella. And it came in just shy of 40,000 words. Um, much different form, I, I think, that, than folks reading the novel would, uh, would see. Uh, and decided after that, that it would work a lot better as a novel. And one of the ways I decided that is that I fe it, it felt really very flat. Um, uh, most of the main points were there, you know, the, the miner arriving at the station, signing up with Feeney, um, I don't know how many spoilers are, are okay, but the, the, the major points were all there, but um, re really kind of felt uh, fell flat. And I felt like I really needed a lot more space to tell that story. Yeah. Um, so uh, may maybe I should stop there and, and see in that wall of text are there questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, one thing that you, you raised, which is just a side note, but I just wanted to say that mm -hmm. I find it fascinating how Akira Kurosawa can have inspired so much of Western entertainment and people, oh, yeah. there are still so many people who don't know who he is. Yeah. And I, and I find that really bizarre. Cause like, obviously, you know, there are things that inspired it, like the hidden fortress inspired star mm -hmm. Wars. And then you've got flat out remakes, like a bug's life is a remake of seven samurai. And like there's, <laughs> there's so many different things that have been inspired by it. And, and people don't even know who he is sometimes when you say it. And it's like, it's just oh, yeah. bizarre. I find that bizarre. Um, but that aside, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, when, you, when you're talking about, um, there's two answers. So obviously there was, there was the 20 year yeah. progress to bringing this story to life, but how long did it take from the big initial conception of the short story 
mm. to the actual publication date? Would that be three years or am I getting the timeline wrong? So I think I, I think it was 2017 that I started writing it. And the novella contest is 45 days. So I know that 40,000 words of that was, was written there. Um, after that, I probably had the finished novel in about a year. Uh, so I started from the novella, 40,000 words in June, I guess it would have been. And I had the finished, I, I had a, a, at least a draft of the novel around that same time in 2018. Um, so from there, I passed it around to, to some of my friends to beta read for me, um, spent kind of the summer working through their feedback and, and I am uh, very, very fortunate to have friends who read both uh, incisively and quickly. Um, and I was shopping it around to agents by that December. So it, it was in a fairly good shape by then. Yeah, so not, not a bad turnaround either. Yeah. So yeah, that, that sounds good. Um, so I guess one thing that will be really interesting to touch on, because it's something that I haven't discussed before and something that I have to admit I have, I am terrible at Mm -hmm. is is the idea of writing either a short story or a novella like the shorter the story gets the harder it is for me and probably for yeah. most people but it's because to me like i'll come over with an idea and then i'll mm -hmm. say right this is going to be a short story and then you'll be like okay right maybe it can be a novella and then before you know it like the the ideas just kind of get out of control so yeah. how oh, yeah. how does the process for um a short story or novella compared to the process of you saying, okay, I'm going to make a novel. Like, oh, well, I guess, I mean, does that work that way? Or do you just always start it as a short story or novella and just see if it expands? Well, for me, at least, I think I start off knowing that it's going to be a short story or a novella or a novel. Um, I may get to the end and scratch my head a bit and say, yeah, I got that one wrong. Uh, but I, at least from the outset, I kind of know. And part of how I know is the scope of what I want to tell. Um, so one of the reasons why I thought Red Noise was going to be a novella rather than a novel is that I really wanted to focus on one character and I really wanted to focus on one location. And that constraint is to me, it feels like it's a shorter form. Um, yep. so novella specifically, cause I knew there were, there were a lot of twists and turns that I wanted. I knew I couldn't get that into a short story. Uh, but that, that's at least my thinking there. Yep. No. And that, and that makes sense. And as you say, like you can, you can change as you're going, but yeah. so if you were to, to write a short story, mm -hmm. what specific things would you go out of your way to make sure happen, like to avoid it becoming too bloated or something while still having like, you know, emotional resonance or some sort of like response from the reader. Oh gosh. Um, I know, that's probably a tricky yeah, question, that one. But... It, it is. Uh, so I feel like when I do this right and I don't always do it right, I kind of work backward from the ending and try to get there as parsimoniously as possible like I, I 
I'm aiming for that the a particular emotional kick, whether I want someone to kind of pump their fist and go, yeah, or I want them to kind of go, oh, that's sad, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and if I can work backward from there, I feel like I can I can get there as quickly as I as I can. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I I guess that's that's the tricky thing that I yeah. find anytime I've ever tried to do a short story or something is like I'll know the the um, core moments that I want to happen, as you say, the moments where you want the audience to feel sad or you want them to feel happy yeah. or something. But I just find that building up to that moment in such a short space of time mm-hmm. is a skill set that I just don't think I have. I mean, I know it's probably like anything. It's probably the more you work on it, you, you could, yeah. but, um, but it is something that I just really struggle with because like when you, when you're writing a novel, Mm-hmm. they're massive, but every word has to count. So you've got to do yeah. so much stuff. And to me, I'm just like, it, it, it baffles me how people are able to do it in such short spaces. But I mean, obviously, you know, being someone who, who not only writes short stories, but obviously promotes a lot of short stories through competitions yeah. and stuff like that, you would know more than me. So from the other side of the the coin there, from the the consumer side what do you look for in a short story that really kind of wows you straight out the gate when i'm reading um i do like to feel a a connection to to what's going on very early um I, i and I know, I know people often get the advice to, you know, start in the thick of things, but I think that that's actually often wrong. Um, I, I want, I, I want to care about the main character before I get excited about them. So, you know, if you start in the middle of a firefight or something, uh, it's like, okay, I, I guess I'm supposed to root for the person using the pronoun I here, but I don't know anything yeah, about them. <laughs> Um, so like in short stories in particular, you've got to do that quickly. And for me, at least like showing super competence is a way to, to get a a connection early. Showing a sense of humor is a way to get a connection early. Um, those are maybe cheap shorthands, but gosh, they work. Yeah. But then, but then that's the sort of end goal, isn't it? That if yeah. it works, it works. Like, I mean, 50 shades of gray works for some people and, you know, yeah. it's terrible, but it's successful. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, it's, that's sort of got to be the the end goal, yeah. but I think you touched on something really interesting. Cause I've, I've on a few episodes of this now, I've talked about the show don't tell rule and how it gets used to the nth degree and then before you know it people have terrible writing because they feel like they can't actually say anything and i think starting in the thick of the action mm-hmm. is some of that advice as well um because i think the idea is that you don't want to have um you know four and a half pages leading up to the moment where people will actually care about what's going on but i think if you can start in the thick of the action you have to do characterization in order to get people to care at the same time. You've got to be doing those two things at once. And in that case it works, but people often take it as, Oh, start in the middle of a battle. And it's like, yeah, but I I don't care who's on either side. So you've Mm -hmm. got to, 
I think if you're going to start in the thick of the action, you've got to characterize really quickly and really well to, to get that, that level of, of empathy and understanding from the reader so that they actually care what happens in it. Yeah. Yeah, you, you do. Um, in some ways it, it's like, um, it's almost like speed dating, you know, yeah. you, 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 that's a very you, good you way to sum it up. <laughs> Yeah, it's a terrifying way to sum it up in some ways. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you, you know, at least I hope, you know, what, what you want to get across about yourself. You know, maybe, maybe you pick and choose uh, what, what to talk about first. I, I don't know. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's what it is. And I think it's, it's like all advice, I guess. It's just, you know, you, you can't take it as gospel because if, if right. you follow it completely, you're, you're going to end up not working because obviously, like, when you're writing a story, a million different things have got to happen at once. So you yeah. can't just follow one rule. And that's why there's rules that contradict the other rules. And it's all very confusing when you're first starting out. Right. Um, but you just, you just need the time to realize that, you know, it, it's all about audience engagement. Yeah. And I think, I think it was um, Harlan Ellison who, who really summed it up. Like the, the real, the real advice is don't be boring, but that's hard advice to follow. So you, you kind of step back. It's like, well, how do you not be boring? Well, I, I avoid being boring by X, Y, Z, but everyone's got a different way to do it. Well, that's, and every reader has a different definition of boring. Like oh, there yeah. are, as, as I say, like I, I did read 50 shades of gray because everyone said it was so great and I was bored to tears, but other people loved oh. it. They thought it was amazing. So, yeah. you know, it, it, to each their own, but um, I guess that's coming down to knowing your audience as well. Mm-hmm. And so I guess on that note, when we're talking about science fiction um, or, or even science fiction fantasy, um, what do you find the, um, the audience responds to best? Like what, what maybe even just some tropes and things like that, that, that the audience respond to? I, I find that people will respond to humor. Um, yep. They, it, 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 even if it's not the point of the story, I think that 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 hooks people in. It gets them comfortable. Beyond that, uh, well, I, I guess I said before, uh, competence. I, as a reader, love reading about very competent people, and, and you know, not not just good at everything. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I've been watching a lot of Great British Baking Show. Um, this year and that is super super compelling to me because i can see people who are really competent but they're also really struggling and those two things are are highly highly addictive to me as a reader well because it creates believable conflict doesn't it whereas when, yeah. if you've got someone if it's like the the dopey you know woman in horror movies who runs up the stairs instead of you know going outside right. to call for help and stuff like that like I mean, they have their place in the horror genre, but, you know, characters like that who are incompetent can just be very frustrating. But then on the flip oh, yeah. side of that, as you say, the, the characters who are amazing at everything can be equally frustrating. So it's good to have someone who's, and, and I mean, they are a character because I guess that's the thing with the reality TV shows is it's they, they treat them mm -hmm. as characters. Um, but it is good to have a character who is um, super competent in one thing but it's causing them a lot of grief. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or they're put in a situation 
just outside their comfort zone where they would really like to use their core skill set, but really ought not. Yeah. Um, am I going to give the first kindergarten cop shout out on your podcast? <laughs> yes, yes, you will. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it is what it is. But uh, it, that, that, that sort of thing really is kind of compelling to people, maybe not that particular one. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think you've summed something up there that, that encompasses all storytelling in whatever genre that um, they need to be competent, but not overly competent, um, but yeah. they need to be struggling as well. Because if they're not struggling, then there's no conflict. And, and I mean, you can have external conflict, but if you don't have internal conflict, right. it doesn't really work on the same level. Yeah, well, it's funny because I was just talking to a friend of mine, not to, uh, actually maybe not too long ago, it was probably a couple months ago, about the manga series One Punch Man. Have, have you seen that? No, um, I know what it is, but I haven't actually seen it. And I, I, I find it, I, I enjoy it a great deal. And the protagonist in it, I mean, that, that, that's his shtick. He literally defeats every single enemy with one punch. And that's in some ways like the, the epitome of the overpowered protagonist. And yet the manga still manages to be fun in a lot of ways. And we were kind of dissecting why. Um, and so a lot of that was a, you know, we see his frustrations, you know, he wants a real fight. Um, we see his boredom and his, uh, his bad habits, I guess, but it also, takes in a whole lot of other characters around him so that we can it's not just focused on the hyper confident character hyper competent character excuse me uh but on their effect around them and, and how other people react to that yeah well that's interesting and i guess I, when you said one i thought you were gonna say one piece and i was like i know plenty about that um <laughs> but that's another example because I think it is probably quite common in the manga and, and anime um, mm -hmm. market to have characters that are ridiculously powerful. Oh, yeah. um, and, and One Piece does have that because um, Luffy, as he keeps going through the story, is just more and more and more powerful and he keeps getting more power. But I think how they diffuse that comes back to the rule that you were saying before um, mm -hmm. about adding humor. Because he's ridiculously competent and he know you know that he's never going to really lose the fight. Um, but they often use a lot of humor to, to kind of keep it entertaining. Yeah. I, I, I'm not as familiar with, with uh, that one. Although I, I know, I know the style. It is weird. One of the other ways, <laughs> I, 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 on the one hand, everybody tells me it's a lot of fun. On the other hand, there's a lot of it. There is a lot of it. And I have to admit, um, I have read, I think I've read one or two volumes of the manga, but I've pr predominantly seen the the anime and I think I've seen mm -hmm. up to episode 900 or something. And, oh, um, oh no, is it 900 or 800 or something? I think there's like a thousand episodes out at the moment. So it is a lot. And yeah. and sometimes it's pacing can get stretched out just because they, they've caught mm. up to the manga and they're like, oh, I've got to stretch this out. So it can become a little bit of a chore <laughs> at times, but um, but it can be fun too. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, it reminded me one of one of the ways that, that you get tension um, with that case when it's very clear that they are just going to win no matter what is the question is like, yeah, are they going to win, but are they going to sacrifice one of their principles in the process? 
Yeah. You know, and it, that's, that, that's, yeah. Creating that internal conflict. Yeah. Which, which I think is, is so important and yet so often underutilized, like mm, yeah. quite often, and particularly now, cause I don't, I, I, I don't know if this is just me sounding like a, a hipster or anything, but, um, Storytelling lately, particularly a lot of Hollywood storytelling and mainstream storytelling has become so lazy. And Mm. I think part of that is this, it misses that soul and nuance of like internal conflict. And I think that's something that doesn't get used very often. Yeah. But it's so compelling. And I was actually having this conversation with um, a friend of mine the other day. We were talking about why, I think the movie Hereditary is infinitely better than Midsummer. Even though I enjoyed Midsummer, oh. um, I, I think Hereditary is so much better. And I pinpointed it to being that it had a much more complicated relationship. And the main character, um, I suppose we can't probably talk about spoilers on here. Um, I haven't seen it, so I, I well, can't I definitely it. won't talk about spoilers then. But the main <laughs> character has an event happen. I'm being very cryptic here, mm-hmm. but the two people in the event, both the person she should feel sorry for and the person she should hate are both related to her. Mm. And so it becomes that very complicated relationship. And that's what I summed up about loving it. And that again, comes back to internal conflict. And it's like, it's just so good. Cause you get, you get put into a position where you're like, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Yeah. And th- Oh, those, those are the, best plots too uh, and they often boil down maybe not in that case but they often boil down to a kind of good versus good plot mm. uh, where you know both people are are sympathetic and one of them has to lose uh, so, sometimes i think in fact often the the readers or the watchers are, are hoping for a kind of synthesis, you know, a third way out where they can find a way that, that both of them will win. Um, oh, what, the, the movie Knives Out. Did yeah. you see that? Uh, yes, I have seen that. Yeah. So uh, without spoiling that too much, I felt that that really did that well, where, you know, okay, for the first portion of the movie, it's kind of a standard mystery movie. And then you get really invested in one of the characters, but at the same time, the the detective is sort of in the role of the bad guy for part of that movie. And you really don't know what you want to happen. You know, they both are in the right, you know? Yeah. And and that's what I, that's what I love. I love when, you know, when it's, when a story can, can make you think and make you sort of say, Oh, okay maybe this person's a good guy and maybe they're the bad guy. And it's not even that question mm-hmm. of like, we will find out later whether they're yeah. the good guy or the good guy or the bad guy. It's more so just that idea of, I don't know, making it a little bit more realistic to life because in real life, you know, it, it doesn't always work that the good guys, um, you know, win and the bad guys lose. And, or, or yeah. even the fact that there are good guys and bad guys to begin with. Like, yeah. I guess I just like stories that, that reflect things that are a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. A bit more ambiguity is yeah. always fun. Um, which I guess brings me to the character of the minor in, in red noise, <laughs> mm-hmm. very ambiguous character. Like we, 
when we're not given a huge amount of, of information about her going into it. So we sort of have to yeah. just like pick up pieces as we're going along. Um, mm-hmm. Was that, was that a conscious choice that you were going to make? Oh yeah. Uh, that um, for me was that, 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 that was the one thing I was not going to compromise on. Um, it was part of what I enjoy so much out of the different genres that I was drawing from. Uh, and I went back to Kurosawa, obviously, um, the, 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 Mifune, the Mifune character in Yojimbo and Sanjuro um, is unnamed. And, you know, uh, he, he gives fake names as well, which is, which is a convenience that I made use of as well. Um, the Clint Eastwood character in The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, no name. Even going back to Dashiell Hammett's um, Continental Op, who is never named. Uh, Red Harvest, uh, the, you can see the shades of that in the titles uh, was, was a big inspiration. And, and I loved that. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to keep that. And at first I tried to keep that by making it first person narration and I just could not pull it off. Uh, I, I, I just do not have the right voice to speak as her for a whole book yep. um, or, or even a novella is when I first tried it. Um, so go, going with the minor in all those cases made me nervous, but I, I think it was, I think it was the right answer for this book, but yeah, some people really don't like it. Uh, mm. I, I know you're not supposed to read your reviews, but I, I've, I've and looked at a and few. And that's, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. And some people just bounced hard, but it, those reviews don't bother me because I know it's like, yeah, you would not have enjoyed it. I'm, I'm glad you got out early. But the thing is, I mean, you've touched on a really important piece of writing advice anyway, that you can't please everyone. And if you end up trying to please everyone, you'll end up pleasing no one. And I guess to use a, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it sci-fi, but to use a sci-fi example, um, it's like the podcast episode where um, RK Gold and I talked about uh, the rise of Skywalker, that Mm -hmm. movie tried to please everyone, ended up pleasing no one because it was, it was trying so hard to appease people that it wasn't telling a story. So I think you've touched on a very valid piece of, of advice, which is that you should write the story for people who will enjoy it for the same reasons that you do. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that that last trilogy suffered from a lack of focus. Uh, it, oh, absolutely. Was it two or three different directors. I, I forget. It was two. Um, yeah. Two different directors. Um, but I, it was funny because at first I thought, you know, that the first one, I, which I've forgotten the name already, I thought that one was so heavily fan service. I thought, okay, they're getting it out of their system. But yeah. No. Um, yeah. Well, see, I, see I, I, I'm one. I'm one of those people that the internet will crucify me, but I don't care. I'm one of those people that my favorite of the trilogy was the last Jedi. I, I, I don't care if that upsets people. <laughs> I actually haven't seen it yet. <laughs> the, the last couple of years of, uh... I was gonna say I was, I was behind the trilogy for the first two movies, but the last one, like it's okay, but it's, yeah. 
it, it's very, it goes back to that same fan servicey thing, but then it also tries yeah. to cater to people who got upset, but then it also tries to cater to people who loved the previous movie. Yeah. And it's just, it just collapses in on and the expectations of itself. Yeah. I think they should have done them all at the same time. Uh, obviously I haven't seen the, the, the last one, but I, I think that getting too much feedback can be as dangerous as getting too little. Well, I think it's also the source that you get your feedback from too, mm, because like, yeah. and I don't say this to look down on people, but fans who have no experience with writing, mm-hmm. they don't know how to tell a story. So in their heads, what they think would make a great story, you play it out and it doesn't work. Yeah. So I think like, obviously if there are people who have studied storytelling or just natural born storytellers, maybe they can, but when you're taking advice from the masses, it's, it, it doesn't really work and you shouldn't let that interfere with the story that you're telling. And I think they, they should have, cause it seems to me like they didn't, but they should have had a clear vision from the get go, whole thing mm-hmm. written out. And then they could have just let it play out the way it was. Yeah. Well, it's in defense of readers a little bit. I I think we lead them by the nose a little bit and point them in a direction with the idea that that will come around from another side. And so when they've been pointed in a direction and and expect something, I I think it's fair for them to expect it. Oh, there's Uh, there's definitely that um, promises sort of angle that you can yeah. you can talk about too like you are setting up promises and that's what they did and that's probably ultimately where it fell apart is they set up promises in the first one that didn't deliver in the second one so everyone got angry and then they tried to deliver them in the third one but you'd yeah. set up promises in the second one that contradicted the first one and then yeah. it all became very complicated and convoluted yeah i had a uh, writing teacher once um Deborah Doyle, who, who has sadly recently passed away, who said that the, the best ending is like the perfect birthday present. Um, you never expect it, but once you get it, it, it is both, it's perfect and obvious. Like, yes, this was, this was absolutely the right thing to get for me, even, the, even if you would never predicted that you would have gotten it. And yeah. I think there's kind of a lot to that. I, th- I think that is absolutely amazing advice. Um, because so often you do see that with a story, like you'll have a great story that's going along and it's, it's great. And then it kind of just ends and you're like, okay, like I didn't hate it. And it it can kind of not sour your whole experience with the story, but it can, um, it can definitely detract from the rest of the experience. If the ending was not, was just satisfactory. Yeah. Well, if it's too predictable, um, and may, maybe I'm betraying my my uh, mystery reading, which is a, a lot of what I read, but I feel like there's something really enjoyable about going through the whole book saying, oh man, th- this train they're gone, it's going to go right off the tracks. Yeah, chapter two, chapter three, this train's going right off the tracks. Chapter 20, chapter 30, yeah. And then you get to the end, wait, it went off the tracks? You know, it, it, it's it's enjoyable to expect something, but at the same time, in the back of your head, you're expecting the author to, to pull a fast one. 
yeah, you're expecting it to go somewhere else. Well, I mean, I suppose it depends on yeah. on genre because obviously yeah. comfortable reads, there's a, there's a very big market for that. There's a very big market okay. for like romance stories that have the sure. exact same plot beats and stuff like that. But I think for the majority of storytelling, you want to have surprises that come as surprises. Like, and I think I discussed this with Chris Panettiere that, um, mm-hmm. that M. Night Shyamalan movies have become predictable in that you know there will be a twist yeah you might not even know what the twist is going to be but the fact that you know that there's going to be one it's become mm-hmm. like his shtick it's right and it kind of detracts from the story because you know that he's going to pull some weird plot twist that has nothing to do with anything and, yeah. and it's going to feel pointless yeah you get away with that a couple of times in your career but uh you, you don't once you start being known as that guy, it stops working for you. That's right. Well, then the big twist should be that you don't have a twist. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I think... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go. Um, I, I think there's sort of the idea there of an appropriate surprise. I, I think every story needs a little bit of a surprise. But even, even the romances, um, the surprise needs to be within certain bounds. You know there's going to be a happily ever after. But you also know that, you know, these two people, they're, they're like oil and water. And so there's got to be a surprise of, yes, they'll get together, but how? And I think that, te- that tension, even within those very constricted bounds, it, it really can, can drive a reader's interest. Yep. No, no, I'd agree with that. And that's obviously, that would be, I would imagine, a, very difficult um undertaking to try and create a a sort of plot twist or or a surprise to come up in the story in something with such you know regimented plot beats i I imagine that would be very difficult it's kind of like um i think i read an interview this was years ago with someone who wrote for soap operas Mm -hmm. and they said it is the hardest writing job you will ever have because to come up with um, new plot lines and new plot twists in shows with that many comas and people falling down <laughs> mine shafts and like, it's actually the hardest writing job that you can possibly oh, yeah. think. Yeah. It, it's, it's almost like writing with a weird magic system where anything is possible. Comas, <laughs> identical twins, falling out <laughs> evil of twins, <laughs> evil twins. Yes. Goes without saying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, clearly one's got to be evil. That's just how it works. Right, it's, it's science. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I think I think twists are are definitely something important. But I think I would actually argue, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would actually argue that our modern culture has kind of spoiled the twist. Um, because we've become so obsessed with this spoiler culture and you can't tell yeah. me anything about this movie that's coming out. But to me, I'm like, if I knew the entire plot of my favorite movies and I saw them for the first time, I would mm-hmm. still love them. Yeah. I, I, there are movies that I can watch over and over. Um, Groundhog Day, for example. Um but at the same time, I have had the experience of going into a movie totally unspoiled and deeply enjoying it. Um, uh, Moon, I, I forget the director. Um, Is that Gareth Edwards? I don't think so. Isn't it um, Duncan Jones? Duncan Jones, that's right. Yeah. 
Um, I went into that. I, I made the the. I think I was in grad school at the time. I made the decision. Okay, I am done with whatever I'm doing. I will go see a movie that looks like science fiction. I've never heard of it, and the twists in that really genuinely caught me by surprise and I greatly enjoyed it and I do wonder if I would have enjoyed it as much not knowing what was coming oh yeah and, and I definitely think that spoilers have a place particularly for certain um stories but yeah. I think we've become so obsessed with it that we think oh yeah it, well it's kind of like I, I guess some people have have spoken about certain movies and books and things like that. And they'll say, Oh, I mean, it didn't surprise me. I knew exactly where it was going. And I was like, yeah, but that's not necessarily <laughs> right. a bad thing. Like it, yeah, it's, it's okay for a story to, to not blow you away with a revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I have a friend um, who, I, I don't know if he still does, but he used to always, before he went to see a movie, looked up the plot online and read it. And he felt that he enjoyed things better that way. Um, I, I, I never quite understood why, whether it was a matter of the, the, the too much tension was uncomfortable, which can definitely be a thing. Yeah, and some, some people some people do that. I have to say that um, the only way I got my friend to watch Hereditary was to, to get her to read an entire synopsis so that she knew so what was going to happen. Um, but that was more so... That was more so the fact that she was just worried about like being utterly terrified, and yeah. um, and I was like, "You will be fine. It's just yep. a movie." Uh, but but see, that's I guess the difference yeah. is that you know I I can handle tension in a movie, whereas yeah. she could not. So it's interesting yeah. how some people approach it in different ways. Yeah. Well, and I think there's even different kinds of tension. Uh, like for example, I, I think there's a whole site there. Does the dog die? Because for enough people out there, there is it, it's an intolerable tension to know whether there's going to be violence against the pets in a movie. Yeah. And the same for children. Some people just cannot handle that. They need to know going in that however much it might be threatened, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And well, I mean, it, when it comes to me, I have to say like, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Cause I just sit back and like, I'm just like, yeah. this is just not real. It's a story. I don't care. Um, right. I mean, not that I don't care, but like, you know, I, I can deal with it, but yeah. um, when it comes to killing animals or something, that is a shortcut to making me hate someone. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's true for most people that like, if someone will kill an animal, you're like, okay, you're a piece of shit. I, I, yep. I cannot deal with you. You need to die. <laughs> yeah. Was it John Wick? That was the the thing. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah. they killed his dog, and it was like, right. Well, that's it. <laughs> yep. Which I have to say, I saw that movie, and it just i i i didn't mind it, but I don't know what all the fuss is about. I I didn't actually finish it. So. Yeah, I just didn't get the fuss. Like I thought Taken was so much better and I cared more about him tracking down the people, but I just, Mm -hmm. I just, I didn't get the point. Like I got the point of John Wick, but I just didn't get the adoration for it. And again, that could come with, you know, you going to see moon with zero expectations of what it is versus me going in to see John Wick with this ridiculous, um, 
inflated view of what it should be because everyone thought it was the greatest thing ever. So yeah, there, there is something to be said for the expectations going into a story. Right. Well, I mean, there, there's a whole genre of there is a wrong and now I go and systematically get revenge on everybody involved. Yeah. I mean, and Kill Bill is one of my favorite yeah, movies yeah. of all time. And it's great Just about because it's the up. same thing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, except I, I think that if, if he had toned it down at all, it would not have worked as well. No, like it, it, it was kind of, I think it was the fact that, yeah, it didn't hold back. Like yeah. even from, you know, the scenes when she first wakes up out of her coma, like it's not just the violence. Like it was, right. it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. But that's what made it work. Like her, her suffering and, and going through so much, which again, she was competent in the one thing, which is killing people. Yeah. Um, but it was the fact that there was just obstacle after obstacle after obstacle was thrown in her way and, you know, beaten and slashed and yeah. buried alive. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. She kind of went it, through it all. Yeah. Um, it, it's almost video game like in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that particularly the first one. Yeah. 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 But, uh, but oddly it works. Whereas like most, mm -hmm. most movies that feel like video games don't work. So I'm not sure. I'm not even sure why that is that that one works and the others don't. I think the, well, A, uh, almost getting back at, at one of your first questions, um, it mashes up so many different things. It's not just ever one source of inspiration. Uh, it's pulling in things from so many other uh, different genres, uh, different mediums even, that uh, there's always something fresh. Like you might get bored of this one bit, but there's so much else going on. Well, do you know what? I think coming back to one of your first answers, I actually think you might have knocked it on the head when you said about comedy, because there's a lot in Kill Bill that is so funny when it shouldn't yeah. be. Oh, like yeah. it, it's it's like horrific things happening, but it's really, really funny. Like even oh, yeah. just simple things like the um Charlie Brown's wife that's like slipping on the blood in her high heels and all that. Like it's not <laughs> funny but it totally but is. It is. Um, and I guess maybe that's part of how it works. And I, I think that comes back to Tarantino's philosophy that, you know, he's always just like, just have fun with it. And, yeah. and that comes across that he is having the time of his life making mm -hmm. these movies. Oh yeah. It, it, it's a wink in some ways, but it, it also heightens the contrast in a way. You, you, you've got that full range of emotional response. Like, like there are fart jokes in Macbeth for Pete's sake, like, but they're, they're, they're there for a reason so that you've got, you've had the experience very recently of sitting and chuckling or maybe rolling your eyes and also the, the horrific bloodshed and, and, and retribution and, and all sorts of, you know, mayhem, that full range, uh, having it, having it in such a tight time frame. I feel like it heightens your responses. Yeah. And I think that that probably shows the need for not even necessarily full comedic plot lines, but quite often you'll need a, um, a, a comedic relief character yeah. because you, you can get bogged down in, in the, the depressing material. And, and, oh, yeah. you know, that 
you don't always have to have a um a you know comic relief character like hereditary mm-hmm. doesn't hereditary is right full on um and it's one of my favorite movies that um i've i've seen in the last few years it's it's yep. really really good but in saying that you watch it and it's an emotionally draining experience to mm, to go through yeah. that much misery and that much suffering and and you know when when i th- think back to a lot of the movies that i love a lot of them do have that break yep in the tension and that break in in the the atmosphere to to not even necessarily shift to something comedic but to shift to a different response from the audience yeah. and i think like i'm um, going to another one which i like i do like movies other than martial arts movies but <laughs> but um crouching tiger hidden dragon is a, is a movie that oh, i yeah. just absolutely love and i love the fact that it's a martial arts movie but it takes like 15 minutes to get to the first battle because they're setting up the mm-hmm. characters and and all these other things but it it jumps from action to hating this person to a romance story to you know it jumps from emotion to emotion so it feels yeah fresh it doesn't feel like it's just doing the one thing because if it had just been fighting for two hours that would have been so boring it would have been like so many other martial arts movies that you just watch and forget yeah it's the same feeling is is as desensitizing as the same smell or the same taste you've you've got to mix it up and uh, humor especially especially when when tension is really high uh, people want to laugh like I, I, yeah, well, I guess it's that, that nervous response that you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The a nervous response, and if you give them the right places to laugh when they don't feel like a horrible person for for <laughs> laughing, or maybe if 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 you do, um, then that that relieves that that bad tension and, and lets you get on with with the uh, with what you want. Yeah, and and I think. Um that Ricky Gervais was one of the people that said that comedy and humor is a coping mechanism for us to deal with things that we don't quite understand yet. And it's about us coming to terms with those things. And I think that that perfectly sums up comic relief characters that, you know, you might have this moment of tension because you don't know the whole story. You don't know what's going on, but that can help. Mm-hmm. alleviate that just even a little bit to to not make you feel like you're constantly on edge oh yeah well th- that was a very deliberate part of how i expanded red noise uh from novella form the first draft was entirely from the miner's perspective and it was just too monotonous and, and even in her storyline there's lots of levity uh there's lots of downtime but I introduced Ditz and Screwball only at the stage of developing it into a novel. And that really heightened that contrast and, and made, made it possible to have the kind of scenes that I couldn't just from the one point of view. Yeah. And, and I guess thinking about those characters and, and maybe again, this is not what you intended, but I guess that, that kind of harked back to Kurosawa again with like mm-hmm. the the two characters from the Hidden Fortress, which obviously inspired C three PO and R two D two and that kind of back and forth. Um, was that something that you consciously went into, or something that you just it just happened organically? I wasn't thinking about those two in particular. Um, I do like the the comedy duo style. Um, I got that more from 
Oh my goodness, I've forgotten his name. There's a series of books set in Florida uh, with two basically serial killers named Serge and Coleman, uh, kind of stoner buddy pair like that. Um, they're more main characters in those books. Oh, I am completely. I have blinded. no idea what it is, but it sounds really good. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, Tim Dorsey, um, Orange Crushes is, is the one that I was looking for on my shelf. Oh, okay. Um, well, then I'm definitely going to have to try that out because that sounds amazing. That sounds like a, a mystery version of like Pineapple Express. Yeah, kind of. It, it, it kind of is. It, it's uh, it, it's a lot of fun in a way that I occasionally feel bad about finding a lot of fun. Yeah, but then as you say, that's that's the response to comedy is that sometimes it is the fact that you're like, oh, I shouldn't be laughing about this, but but it's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So I guess coming back to Red Noise, mm-hmm. um. The character of the miner is, and I, I, I did a whole video on this, but the, yeah. the character of the miner is a, a strong female character. But by the same token, she never plays into the the tropes of a strong female character in the sense that, like, it, it's not a big marketing point for the book. Like, yeah. it's it's she's not... I would put it as she's not a strong female character. She's a female character who happens to be strong. And I actually think that that does more for diverse perspectives than it being a marketing ploy because it it normalizes a strong woman at the front of the story rather than making it a a big focal point. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the, the question that I was going to ask was, was that something that you had in mind or did it just come about organically? Like that was what you just always saw the character being? Uh, To a certain extent. Um, I dealt with it very consciously as I was writing. Um, I knew the sort of character that I wanted because I knew the kind of role that needed to be filled. But once I decided that she needed to be the she for the plot, then it was important to me that that she actually works as a person first. Um, Then that, and, you know, I kind of modeled it, uh, kind of modeled the character on several people that I've I've known and and probably I'd better not name them. I don't know if they'd actually find that um, flattering or not. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, I, I think I, could have written the book with the male protagonist and I think it I think the character would have been totally unremarkable and so I wanted it to also be unremarkable that she's a female character yeah if you see what I mean yeah no and that's and that's sort of what I said before that I think to have like obviously I understand that people push for diversity 
because of a lack of it. And I understand that. But mm-hmm. I do think that in, in order to move forward and have that diversity be something normal, we need to normalize it and not necessarily make it a focal point all the time. And that's one thing that I think you did really, really well is she came off, she came across as, you know, this strong, independent woman, but at the same time, she wasn't sitting there announcing it constantly and, and, and making it a point in the book. And I, I just think you did yeah. that really well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I figure if I'm writing about the future, I, I want all of my friends to be there. It, 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 that's sort of a weird way to put it, I guess. But you know, I want, I want my the, I want the characters in my book to look like the people I see around me, and the people I see around me are a diverse group. Yeah, and that, and that's a great way to view it. And I guess it probably comes back to what I was saying before about Star Trek that to me, I always just come back to Gene Roddenberry's vision where it's like, we're all in it together and yeah, we'll take, you know, cultural aspects from everyone and we'll, we'll all use our strengths to work together. And, and, and look, I know that makes me sound like a tired old hippie or something, but Mm -hmm. I, I don't care. I think that that's (laughs) a great philosophy to have when writing is just, have everyone in there but not necessarily have diversity as a source of conflict all the time yeah i i I see what you mean there um and you're right the the if you focus on the diversity itself then a you you risk coming across as wanting to pat yourself on the back yeah performative yeah exactly and so and, and i think with any group of people, there's going to be conflict. Um, if, if you are trying to force it as a matter of highlighting, oh, hey, look how diverse this cast is, it's not going to be true to the characters. Well, it's, it's going to feel like um, author intrusion, isn't it? It's going to feel like the, yeah. The, yeah. I, I, the, the analogy I use um, all the time when I reference it is uh, not not that I was a big fan of it originally but when they brought back will and grace i think i watched some of it and um it was just like trump joke trump joke trump joke and even though i agreed with everything that they were saying it was just it was just this like i'm like oh my god i can hear you patting yourself on the back for being so clever and it's just it's really taking me out of watching this thing that you've created because you know I, i can hear you not the characters I didn't even know they'd brought it back. Oh, uh, it's that's gone, how much of it's gone again. So don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have bothered with it. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's just my sort of philosophy is I'm like, I just feel like, and maybe, maybe it's a little naive, but I'm just like, I, I just feel like diversity should just happen. It just should. And then it, and then it will be, which again, might be a little bit um, naive, but yeah. What are you, what are you going to do? Um, so I guess one other thing that I was going to ask was how did you first get into short stories? Because it's not something that we typically see a lot of people doing nowadays. It's normally going straight for the novel. And I think it was Stephen King that said that, Mm -hmm. um, the art of the short story is dying. So, so what, how exactly did you get into the short stories? Well, I started off writing long. Um, I, let's see. 
I don't, I, I think, I think the, the first bit when I really tried to write seriously 10 years or so ago was probably novella length rather than novel length. But, you know, I, I was writing long um, and I realized fairly quickly that I was going to need feedback. Um, and so I looked at what was available online. I, I didn't really have a writing community around me. And I found, um, I think it was Critters, the Critters Workshop was one thing that I found. And I saw um, workshops were available. And one of the things that I noticed was that the people who were getting, in my opinion, better feedback um, were the people who were sending whole stories. And, and you know, in Critters, for example, you've got to provide critiques of other people's stories uh, before you can get critiques of your own. And I found that I could give better advice when I was given a whole story. And, and of course, it, it, in order to get a whole story, it's gotta be a short story. And I thought, okay, that makes perfect sense to me. And I started writing shorter stories and I am naturally long-winded, I think. Um, so that was a little bit of a challenge. I, I think my first short stories were, were technically uh, novelettes uh, over 17,000 words. Uh, but you know, I made myself be concise in part because some of the feedback I got was, hey, this is long-winded. And I found that it gave a really nice um, immediate feedback uh, in the way that novels really, really don't, uh, which is good, I think, when you're first starting out. I mean, it, 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 can, it can suck when the feedback is, hey, this is terrible, uh, but A, you didn't spend as much time on it, and B, you, you've probably got another one uh, ready to go out. So I, I kind of eased into it from trying to write long just out of that need for feedback and getting a little bit addicted maybe to the more instant response. Yep. And and that's totally understandable. I can understand that. And and you're right that I guess if you had spent a month or two months working on a story versus a year, mm -hmm. the the crushing blow of this whole thing is terrible. Oh, it's yeah. probably going to be a lot worse than if it was if it was a lot smaller because you haven't dedicated as much time. But I guess on the editing side, you probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. you would probably be less inclined to get too close and too emotionally attached because you're spending less time with it. Whereas a novel, if you're spending a year to 20 mm. years, as you say, you know, percolating with this idea and, and all that, you, you can become blind to it because of the amount of time you've spent. So I guess it probably, it probably does Ooh. work with the short story to, to have um, sort of that. To yeah. an extent, to an extent. I mean, if it's the only thing that you've got out there, then it's, you're going to be focused on it no matter what, even if it's a hundred word story, if that's the only thing of yours that people are looking at and giving feedback on, I think you're going to be super invested no matter what. I think where the short story can help you is when you've got a bunch of them out there and you, you, you've, you've spread your, your affections among multiple children instead of putting all of your eggs in one basket. 
Well, I guess that I guess the way I would sort of the analogy that I would use for that would be like actors. It's like they they make a movie. And then mm-hmm. by the time it's actually been released, they've made another two or three. So that one's kind oh, of yeah. in the rear view at that point. So it's probably a good mentality to have that, you know, if, if you get oh, yeah. this thing published or something, you know, you can move on and then you can be like a book ahead or, you know, five short stories ahead. So it probably takes the sting out a little bit. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I definitely think that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, I think it's, is it Matt Inman, the, 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 the guy who does the oatmeal, had a wonderful thing um, a while back when he had been doing it for like 10 years. And he, he posted a list of, of all the things that he'd learned. And one of them was about killing your darlings. And he, he likened it to, you know, if you have one thing that you've been sitting and perfecting, you know, whether it's a novel or a short story, it's, it's like a, a, a baby, but you know, babies are notoriously fragile, whereas he would rather put out baby chicks. You know, they're, they're, they're cute, but, you know, you, you can produce a million of them and you don't really care what happens to too many. Um, it, it's sort of a barbaric analogy, but... But it works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I think that that's a really good idea. I think that um, yeah, moving on to the next one and not and, and look, it's probably great from a publishing standpoint anyway, because when you submit to agents or to publishers or to anyone else, there's going to be that waiting period. And so rather than sitting there and spending your whole time thinking and thinking about oh, what's going to happen with this, you should probably move on. And then that way, when you do get the feedback, you'll be fixated on the next yeah. thing that you're working on anyway. So yeah, I think that's probably some great advice. Yeah, that that is that is the best way to do it. Move on to something else. Yeah, and and, and that can be hard, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly as you say, working on a story for like twenty years, and and I mean, yeah. my I've got a manuscript that's currently going through an editor at the moment, and mm-hmm. it's a combination of like ten years off and on of of writing and like of different variations and I've like I've learned to write with this piece of writing so like it's a weird feeling to move on to something else because you've been fixated on something for so long um I mean in saying that it wasn't 10 years as I say it's 10 years off and on like I'd pick, right, right. I'd pick it up and you know leave it alone and then you'd pick it up again in a few years or whatever um mm-hmm. but it is it is weird that you know you spend so long on on a piece of work that you then just like all right well let's go and do something else and it's like it obviously it won't take as long the second time mm-hmm. around but it just it's it obviously is a, a a different feeling that you're like okay well I'm, I'm actually gonna gonna let that go now and move on to something new oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah there, there's a saying that that no novel is ever done; it's only abandoned. Yep, and I think that that would be right. And I think that's important advice too to say that you know you will never get it perfect, so so don't stress about about making it perfect. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, your editor would like you to make it perfect. Yeah, I mean, you've got to try as yeah. hard as you can. Yes. Like, don't submit the first draft. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's a balancing act. It, it, it's hard. Um, especially, I think a lot of people, when they get into maybe the, the two thirds mark, really start to hate it. It's like, ah, oh, this is, it's not going the way I want. It's, uh, it's in its teenage years, you know? Um, 
but then you you get past that and, and then the 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 urge comes back to try to try to go back and, and sand it all down and, and smooth it all down and get it perfect yeah it's it, it's hard it is um <laughs> and yeah no i think that's a perfect analogy too to say the the teenage years where it's not cooperating and, yeah. and all the rest yeah. of that stuff i think i think one thing i i have come to to learn in my experience is I think the important thing, if you can take away one important thing, and this isn't to say that the other isn't important, but Mm -hmm. if you take away one thing from the writing experience, it should be that planning out the story and what's going to happen beneath the surface. That is where you want to put your attention to detail because like, you know, if you have a few sentences that aren't perfectly structured or something that that's not going to matter as much as if the you know final act is terrible like you can have the most beautiful prose then and no one's going to care yeah well if you get the structure right too then that can help you out of a jam like if you know what's going on if you know what has to go on then when you find yourself stuck then you you've got some bones to work with um for for example uh the i don't know if you remember the chapter with the three guards in the bottom in the barber shop yep that took me forever to write. And part of that was that I kept trying to write it from the miner's point of view. And it just was not working. And I had to go back to the structure of the piece and figure out, okay, where is everybody? What is everybody doing? How does this actually fit in what needs to happen? And that's what made me realize that I was working from the wrong point of view and I needed to beef up the, the contribution of the bit players. Yep. And, and that, and that scene turned out great. So clearly it was the right choice. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something that, um, I, I just, and I'm not, this isn't being judgmental of people who Mm -hmm. work this way, but it is something that I cannot fathom, um, the people who who just purely make it up as they go along discovery oh, writers i yeah. i i could not do it i honestly could not do it because there's just you you fall into so many different pitfalls and then you know things that you've written at the start won't work at the end and then you've got to go back and rewrite it and all that and that just yeah. the thought of that just gives me a headache i know some people work that way and to them plotting things and having planning documents and stuff like that is a mm-hmm. headache for them. But I just, to me, it has to be organized or else it'll do my yeah. head in. I think everybody does a little bit of discovery writing. It's just that I think people who, who do a lot of planning do it at the outline stage or in the planning stage um, yeah. instead of when you're in the thick of writing. I do some discovery writing when I do short stories. Um, just because the, the, the effort of, of plotting it out and planning it is, you know, I might as well just write it. Yeah. Well, uh, there's less to clean up if you make yeah, exactly. mistakes at the start too. So, oh yeah. And I guess that comes back to, I have actually mentioned this in another episode, but it comes mm-hmm. back to advice from Tarantino that he says when he creates his movies, um, he writes them out as a novel, not with full prose or anything like that, but he oh. writes them out as a novel because he finds that it's only about, um, halfway through the story that he starts to realize who these characters really are. And I think that's where like everyone's a discovery writer to some point, like 
the, yeah. the, the the nuances of the character get discovered as you're writing the story. And and I'm totally fine with that. But um like cause you've got to be flexible. You can't be rigid mm-hmm. in in your beliefs with the the plotting and you know planning. Right. Um but I I just yeah personally I'm like I it, it does my head in to think that I would have to go back to the start and just rewrite everything from the ground up. That just not well, you fan. know, there's there's something to it, though, um, with some of my longer stories uh, in terms of takes a long time to write. Uh, I find that things get uneven and I miss stuff. And I've actually on a couple of occasions um, either printed it out or put it in a separate um, uh, monitor and retyped the whole thing from scratch. And that sounds like an exercise in futility or misery or self-flagellation, but I find myself changing things as I go. It's like, eh, no, I didn't write that very well. I, I can go this way instead. Uh, and it is a lot more fun than it sounds. I mean, see, it would have to be. See, I guess in some ways I do that, like because I don't typically do it um, – on the computer, but the when I get to the point where I feel like structurally it's it's mm-hmm. good, um, I will print it out and I will scribble over it with notes and things until you can't even tell where anything goes anymore, <laughs> and then I'll like key it all in and then print it out again and it should be getting yeah. towards sort of done. So I guess I do it in a printed out version. But mm-hmm. yeah, like, I don't know. I've, it's just to me that the typing of it, it obviously just doesn't right. work, but then that's it, isn't it? That everyone has different yeah. processes that they go through. But um, I, I, I personally have to print it out and, and read it on paper. And I don't know why, but once I do that, I just instantly can see like all sorts of things that I need to fix. Yeah. Well, I've seen advice that, that just seeing your work in a different format changes the way you perceive it even if it's just a matter of changing the font yeah um and you know printing it out uh, it's it's got that nice tactile uh, component you, you've got to switch the pages as you're moving i, I feel like it, it engages your brain in a slightly different way and that's important yeah and and i mean another tactic that i do is to sometimes run um run the text through a text to speech um, engine oh. just to, just to hear it read back to me to, to see how that sounds. And um, yeah, I guess it's that same thing that it's just engaging a different part of the yeah. brain. Whereas if you're sitting there looking at the computer screen over and over again, you just, you overlook so much. Oh yeah. Oh, it's, it's how you wind up with the same word twice in a row. You you look at that and think, how could I possibly have actually sat and typed that word 10 letters long, both of them, and and missed it three times, but you you, you see what you expect to see. Yeah, that's right. Um, But yeah, I think it's, I think it's good. And I think it's good to have space between it too, but Mm -hmm. like in situations where you can't have space, I think it's, it's really good to, to switch it up and, and either listen to it read it yourself or like read it out yeah. loud, listen to it being read by someone else. I um, mean, mm-hmm. which in most cases would be like a text to speech because we don't all have someone to sit and read our stories to us. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it's, it's good just to have that different um, experience. Yeah. It, it, 
it, it freshens it up too, which is which is a nice way of re-motivating yourself. Yeah, which again, I guess, comes back to that same thing that, um, you know, we can become precious about our work because it becomes mm-hmm. routine. Whereas if you, if you do freshen it up and you listen to it from, like, as I say, if you listen to a text-to-speech reading it and you're like, hang on, that sentence really just doesn't fit there. And like, yeah. maybe if you'd have read it yourself, you would have filled it in and, you know, there's, there's just mm-hmm. a million different ways that you can, um, you can yeah. experience your own story to try and keep it fresh. Yeah. Of course, some, sometimes that, that can backfire. I, I've repeatedly, and I, I've talked to other, other writers who, who do this too, so I'm not the only one. I've repeatedly like been going through the text um, and think, oh man, I've got this brilliant line that'll go right here perfectly. And I insert that line and then I keep going. And then three paragraphs later, there's the line. That I've, yeah, I've, I've done that before where, and obviously because it's uh-huh. just, it's just embedded in your subconscious. You're yeah. like, that's a great line. And then you're like, Oh, yeah. that's why I thought it was such a great line. Cause I've already written it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. No, I have done that before. So yeah, I think it's great to, to shake things up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that might be a perfect place to, to leave it. Um, where can people find you if they wanted to get in touch with you with more questions? Um, so my blog is probably the best place at johnpmurphy.net. Um, it's got links to several of my short stories that are online and places to find both uh, Red Noise and also my novellas. Uh, I don't update the blog part as often as I should, and I'm not doing too many. Uh, uh conventions these days amazingly no (laughs) Uh, but that's probably the best place to find out what's going on with me hope you enjoyed this episode of the right direction if you want to see conversations like this and so many more please check out the podcast on spotify stitcher google podcasts and everywhere good podcasts are kept that's right direction w-r-i-t-e and now that you've been given the right direction you can go off and write